0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life by C.S. Lewis Chapter 7, Light and Shade Epigraph No situation, however wretched it seems, but has some sort of comfort attending it. Goldsmith "Here's a fellow," you say, "who used to come before us as a moral and religious writer, and now, if you please, he's written a whole chapter describing his old school as a very furnace of impure loves, without one word on the heinousness of the sin." But there are two reasons. One you shall hear before this chapter ends. The other is that, as I have said, the sin in question is one of the two (gambling is the other) which I have never been tempted to commit. I will not indulge in futile philippics against enemies I never met in battle. This means, then, that all the other vices you have so largely written about, well, yes it does, and more's the pity, but it's nothing to our purpose at the moment. I have now to tell you how Wyvern made me a prig. When I went there, nothing was further from my mind than the idea that my private taste for fairly good books, for Wagner, for mythology gave me any sort of superiority over those who read nothing but magazines and listened to nothing but the then fashionable ragtime the claim might seem unbelievable if i did not add that i had been protected from this sort of conceit by downright ignorance mr ian hay somewhere draws a picture of the reading minority at a public school in his day as boys who talked about gbs and gkc in the same spirit in which other boys secretly smoked Both sets were inspired by the same craving for forbidden fruit, and the same desire to be grown up. And I suppose boys such as he describes might come from Chelsea, or Oxford, or Cambridge homes, where they heard things about contemporary literature. But my position was wholly different. I was, for example, a great reader of Shaw about the time I went to Wyvern. But I had never dreamed that reading Shaw was anything to be proud of. Shaw was an author on my father's shelves, like any other author. I began reading him because his dramatic opinions contained a good deal about Wagner, and Wagner's very name was then a lore to me. Thence I went on to read most of the other Shaw's we had. But how his reputation stood in the literary world I neither knew nor cared. I didn't know there was a literary world. My father told me Shaw was a mountebank, but that there were some laughs in John Bull's other island. It was the same with all my other reading. No one, thank God. Had ever admired or encouraged it. William Morris, for some unfathomable reason, my father always referred to as that whistle-painter. I might be, no doubt I was, conceited at chart for being good at my Latin. This was something recognized as meritorious, but English lit was blessedly absent from the official syllabus, so I was saved from any possibility of conceit about it. Never in my life had I read a work of fiction, poetry, or criticism in my own language except because, after trying the first few pages, I liked the taste of it. I could not help knowing that most other people, boys and grown-ups alike, did not care for the books I read. A very few tastes I could share with my father, a few more with my brother. Apart from that, there was no point of contact, and this I accepted as a sort of natural law, If I reflected on it at all, it would have given me, I think, a slight feeling not of superiority, but of inferiority. The latest popular novel was so obviously a more adult, a more normal, a more sophisticated taste than any of mine. A certain shame or bashfulness attached itself to whatever one deeply and privately enjoyed. I went to the call, far more disposed to excuse my literary tastes than to plume myself on them. But this innocence did not last. It was, from the first, a little shaken by all that I soon began to learn from my form master about the glories of literature. I was at last made free of the dangerous secret that others had, like me, found their enormous bliss, and been maddened by beauty. Among the other new bugs of my year, too, I met a pair of boys who came from the Dragon School at Oxford, where Naomi Mitchison, in her teens, had just produced her first play. And from them also I got the dim impression that there was a world I had never dreamed of, a world in which poetry, say, was a thing public and accepted, just as games and gallantry were accepted at Wyvern. Nay, a world in which a taste for such things was almost meritorious. I felt, as Siegfried felt, when it first dawned on him that he was not Mimi's son. What had been my taste was apparently our taste. If only I could ever meet the we to whom that hour belonged. And if our taste, then, by a perilous transition, perhaps good taste, or the right taste. For that transition involves a kind of fall. The moment good taste knows itself, some of its goodness is lost. Even then, however, it is not necessary to take the further downward step of despising the Philistines who do not share it. Unfortunately, I took it. Hitherto, though increasingly miserable at Wyvern, I had been half ashamed of my own misery, still ready, if I were only allowed, to admire the Olympians, still a little overawed, cowed rather than resentful. I had, you see, no standing place against the Wyvernian ethos, no side for which I could play against it. It was a bare eye against what simply seemed the world. But the moment that I became, however vaguely, a we, and Wyver not the world, but a world, the whole thing changed. It was now possible, at least in thought, to retaliate. I can remember what may well have been the precise moment of this transition. A prefect called Blug, or Glub, or some such name stood opposite me, belching in my face, giving me some order. The belching was not intended as an insult. You can't insult a fag any more than an animal. If Bulb had thought of my reaction at all, he would have expected me to find his erections funny. What pushed me over the edge into pure priggery was his face. The puffy, bloated cheeks. The thick, moist, sagging lower lip. The yokel blend of drowsiness and cunning. The lout, I thought. The clod. The dull, crass clown. For all his powers and privileges I would not be he. I had become a prig, a highbrow. The interesting thing is that the public school system had thus produced the very thing which it was advertised to prevent or cure. For you must understand, if you had not been dipped in that tradition yourself, that the whole thing was devised to knock the nonsense out of the smaller boys and put them in their place. If the junior boys weren't fagged, as my brother once said, they would become insufferable. That is why I felt so embarrassed a few pages ago, when I had to confess that I had got rather tired of perpetual fagging. If you say this, every true defender of the system will diagnose your case at once, and they will all diagnose it in the same way. Ho ho, they will cry. So that's the trouble. Thought yourself too good to black your better's boots, did you? That just shows how badly you needed to be fagged. It's to cure young prigs like you that the system exists. That any cause except thinking yourself too good for it might awaken discontent with a fag's lot will not be admitted. You have only to transfer the thing to adult life and you will, apparently, see the full logic of the position. If some neighboring VIP had irresistible authority to call on you for any service he pleased at any hour when you were not in the office. If, when you came home on a summer evening tired from work and with more work to prepare against the morrow, he could drag you to the links and make you his caddy till the light failed. If at last he dismissed you unthanked with a suitcase full of his clothes to brush and clean and returned to him before breakfast and a hamper full of his foul linen for your wife to wash and mend. And if, under this regime, you were not always perfectly happy and contented, where could the cause lie except in your own vanity? What else, after all, could it be? For, almost by definition, every offense a junior boy commits must be due to cheek or side, and to be miserable, even to fall short of rapturous enthusiasm, is an offense." Obviously, a certain grave danger was ever present to the minds of those who built up the Wyvernian hierarchy. It seemed to them self-evident that, if you left things to themselves, boys of 19 who played rugger for the country and boxed for the school would everywhere be knocked down and sat on by boys of 13. And that, you know, would be a very shocking spectacle. The most elaborate mechanism, therefore, had to be devised for protecting the strong against the weak the close corporation of old hands against the parcel of newcomers who were strangers to one another and to everyone in the place, the poor, trembling lions against the furious and ravening sheep. There is, of course, some truth in it. Small boys can be cheeky, and half an hour in the society of a French thirteen-year-old makes most of us feel that there is something to be said for fagging after all. Yet I cannot help thinking that the bigger boys would have been able to hold their own without all the complicated assurances, pattings on the back, and encouragement which the authorities gave them. For, of course, these authorities, not content with knocking the nonsense out of the sheep, were always coaxing and petting an at least equal quantity of nonsense into the lions. Power and privilege and an applauding audience for the games they play. Might not the mere nature of boys have done all, and rather more than all, that needed doing in this direction without assistance? But whatever the rationality of the design, I contend that it did not achieve its object. For the last thirty years or so, England has been filled with a bitter, truculent, skeptical, debunking, and cynical intelligentsia. A great many of them were at public schools, and I believe very few of them liked it. Those who defend the schools will, of course, say that these prigs are the cases which the system failed to cure. They were not kicked, mocked, fagged, flogged, and humiliated enough. But surely it is equally possible that they are the products of the system? That they were not prigs at all when they came to their schools, but were made prigs by their first year, as I was? For really, that would be a very natural result. Where oppression does not completely and permanently break the spirit, has it not a natural tendency to produce retaliatory pride and contempt? We reimburse ourselves for cuffs and toil by a double dose of self-esteem. No one is more likely to be arrogant than a lately freed slave. I write, of course, only to neutral readers. With the wholehearted adherents of the system there is no arguing, for, as we have already seen, They have maxims and logic which the lay mind cannot apprehend. I have even heard them defend compulsory games on the ground that all boys, except a few rotters, like the games. They have to be compulsory because no compulsion is needed. I wish I had never heard chaplains in the armed forces produce a similar argument in defense of the wicked institution of church parades. But the essential evil of public school life, as I see it, did not lie either in the sufferings of the fags or in the privileged arrogance of the bloods. These were symptoms of something more all-pervasive, something which, in the long run, did most harm to the boys who succeeded best at school and were happiest there. Spiritually speaking, the dead thing was that school life was a life almost wholly dominated by the social struggle. To get on, to arrive, or, having reached the top, to remain there was the absorbing preoccupation. It is often, of course, the preoccupation of adult life as well. But I have not yet seen any adult society in which the surrender to this impulse was so total. And from it, at school as in the world, all sorts of meanness flow. The sycophancy that courts those higher in the scale, the cultivation of those whom it is well to know, THE SPEEDY ABANDONMENT OF FRIENDSHIPS THAT WILL NOT HELP ON THE UPWARD PATH, THE READINESS TO JOIN THE CRY AGAINST THE UNPOPULAR, THE SECRET MOTIVE IN ALMOST EVERY ACTION. THE WYVERNIANS SEEM TO ME IN RETROSPECT TO HAVE BEEN THE LEAST SPONTANEOUS, IN THAT SENSE THE LEAST BOYISH, SOCIETY I HAVE EVER KNOWN. IT WOULD PERHAPS NOT BE TOO MUCH TO SAY THAT IN SOME BOYS' LIVES EVERYTHING WAS CALCULATED TO THE GREAT END OF ADVANCEMENT. FOR THIS GAMES WERE PLAYED. For this clothes, friends, amusements, and vices were chosen. And that is why I cannot give pederasty anything like a first place among the evils of the call. There is much hypocrisy on this theme. People commonly talk as if every other evil were more tolerable than this. But why? Because those of us who do not share the vice feel for it a certain nausea, as we do, say, for necrophily? I think that of very little relevance to moral judgment. Because it produces permanent perversion? But there is very little evidence that it does. The Bloods would have preferred girls to boys if they could have come by them. When, at a later age, girls were obtainable, they probably took them. Is it then on Christian grounds? But how many of those who fulminate on the matter are in fact Christians? And what Christian? in a society so worldly and cruel as that of Wyvern, would pick out the carnal sins for special reprobation. Cruelty is surely more evil than lust, and the world at least as dangerous as the flesh. The real reason for all the pother is, in my opinion, neither Christian nor ethical. We attack this vice not because it is the worst, but because it is, by adult standards, the most disreputable and unmentionable, and happens also to be a crime in English law. The world will lead you only to hell, but sodomy may lead you to jail, and create a scandal, and lose you your job. The world, to do it justice, seldom does that. If those of us who have known a school like Wyvern dared to speak the truth, we should have to say that pederasty, however great an evil in itself, was, in that time and place, the only foothold or cranny left for certain good things. It was the only counterpoise to the social struggle, the one oasis, though green only with weeds and moist only with fetid water, in the burning desert of competitive ambition. In his unnatural love affairs, and perhaps only there, the blood went a little out of himself, forgot for a few hours that he was one of the most important people there are. It softens the picture. A perversion was the only chink left through which something spontaneous and uncalculating could creep in. Plato was right after all. Eros, turned upside down, blackened, distorted, and filthy, still bore the traces of his divinity. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be.